Future episodes of this show will be on their own feed. Please consider subscribing to Saved by the 90s on your preferred podcast service as well as SoundCloud and YouTube. This is Saved by the 90s, the show about 90s films and the pop culture surrounding them. I'm your host, Adam Patterson. I'm joined today by the illustrious Ken Bakley, and I'd like to welcome you to July 1993. Jurassic Park, where the giant dinosaurs live again with all the excitement of the movie. Look for the J.P. Mark only at Jurassic Park. The temperature's rising, school's out, and UB40's cover of Can't Help Falling in Love is rising on the charts thanks to its appearance in the soundtrack for the movie Sliver. Fresh off his tenure as the narrator and sometimes director of The Wonder Years, which just ended in May, Daniel Stern, who's best known for his role as Marv in the Home Alone films, made his directorial debut in in the film Rookie of the Year, released July 7th. Henry Rowengardner had a dream. Rowengardner, get it right! Playing in the major leagues. Only one thing stood in his way. Home! Home! Reality. Until one day, everything fell into place. How long will he have to be in the cast? August. And now rotate from the shoulder. Oh! Oh, whoa! Funky butt loving! Did he say funky butt loving? Those tendons have healed uh, a little tight. Now, the kid who wasn't good enough for Little League is pitching. Gosh, Henry, you can play for the Cubs. Hey! In the big leagues. I'm the new pitcher. (laughs) 12-year-old Henry Rowengardner, the youngest person in history to play Major League Baseball. The majors. Hey, pitcher! Will be answering to a minor. Pitcher's got a big butt. Pitcher's got a big butt. Rookie of the Year. When an accident miraculously gives a boy an incredibly powerful pitching arm, he becomes a major league pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. Ken, let's talk about Rookie of the Year. Now, I was nine years old when this came out. You were... Negative six. Negative six. (laughs) I was very much into baseball, at this time in my life, I was obsessed with the Baltimore Orioles. I was an Orioles fan. Mm-hmm. So when this movie came out, I was absolutely obsessed. I saw this movie, I think, twice in the theater. And then when it hit pay-per-view, I recorded it on VHS off of pay-per-view. Back, back then, you could, you could dial a number... And then you hit the number of which movie you want. And then it would play on that channel over and over. It would just keep playing on that channel over and over. And I recorded Rookie. Not supposed to, obviously. But I recorded Rookie of the Year. Yeah. Just a a little pirate Mm -hmm. I was. And I so I absolutely loved Rookie of the Year back then. Now, I have not seen Rookie of the Year probably since then. So I was a little nervous going into this about how it would hold up, what I would think about it now. And I'm actually happy to say that I think it did hold up for the most part. And I enjoyed revisiting Rookie of the Year. Now, was this a first time watch for you? It's definitely the first time I've seen it all the way through. Uh, I feel like I'm just familiar with it as a concept. 
just one of those ideas that kind of sticks around in the culture, I guess. Just all of these these conceptually insane 90s kids movies that uh, my, line, my idea is that they play like uh, you took the daydreams of like a 10-year-old boy and then put it into a screenplay without any modification at all and just let it happen. Oh, yeah. I mean... This was like a dream movie for me. That's why that's why I loved it so much cuz I I played baseball. I loved baseball, but I was horrible at baseball, just like Henry Henry Roan Gardner was. I could also regale you with uh tales of my ineptitude at little league. Yeah, I loved it, but I was so bad. Just I didn't so even bad. love it. It was just It was just me embarrassing and injuring myself. I mean, that happened a lot, too. The embarrassment, the injury, all of that. Yeah, definitely. But this is uh, this is in a long line of 90s sports movies. Uh, they, we had Angels in the Outfield, The Mighty Ducks. There was three of those Mighty Ducks movies. Uh, I think there was a Little Giants that came out during that time. There was The Big Green, which was a soccer movie. There was The Sandlot. Probably the most famous of them was the Sam Sandlot. I think uh, Sandlot came out earlier in the year of 93. This movie stars Thomas Ian Nicholas as Henry. Kid loves baseball. He sucks at it. And he, one day, one of the, one of the bullies at his school tosses him a ball and he goes to catch it, but he slips on another baseball that happens to be just so perfectly placed in his way and he breaks his arm and or it's his uh more like his it's his shoulder they spend a lot of time trying to justify the anatomy of this even yeah. though it's just patently absurd and they know it they spend multiple scenes trying to explain exactly what is causing this which i admire so he breaks his shoulder and after 4 months in a huge cast. I mean, this cast goes from his wrist all the way up to his chest. This is an enormous cast. I almost wonder if this would have been a better movie if it was just about like him being in that cast the whole time. It would have been a completely different movie. It would have been a more wide-ranging movie. It was just about this kid has to spend his summer in an incredibly uncomfortable position uh, with all of... with horrible blood circulation in this cast and it always looks like he has his hand raised <laughs> yeah and just him doing the day-to-day -day stuff i could watch a whole movie of him just struggling to live his life in this position i found that montage fascinating <laughs> so he gets the cast off after four months and they discover that the tendons have fused to something else they're super tight and they have caused this uh, sort of the slingshot effect with his arm where after, when he stretches his arm back, it kind of snaps and it allows him to throw a ball really fast. He's he's chucking 103 mile an hour fastballs at this point, which uh, is pretty, pretty impressive, which leads to one of the one of the more famous lines where the doctor says uh 
funky uh, funky butt lovers or something. yeah i kind of just uh, paused the movie there very briefly and went back and played that again to make sure i heard that right yeah i think it's a, a funky butt loving which and almost, then the kid even repeats it he's like did you just say funky butt loving that line is more profane than whatever uh swear word they had to that it's a replacement for in a pg movie well, there's also the scene near the beginning when Henry and his friends are at lunch and they're eating lunch and they're talking about this girl that he has a crush on. And he's like, ah, oh, she's not into me. And he's like, she's not even that hot anyway. And his friend goes, not that hot. She's stacked. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, yep, you would not get away with that today in a PG rated kids movie. This that is- just wouldn't. That wouldn't this, happen. This is something we're going to come back to a lot, especially if we cover more and more of these 90s kids movies. It's just so many things that do not pass any kind of uh, test of what you would put in a kids movie in 2018. It's And it's also funny because we, off the air last week, we were literally talking about how movies have gotten more tame over the years gradually since uh starting in probably the 80s till now we've we've seen movies become gradually more tame and i just think that this is it's a perfect example of it right here the the stuff you could get away with saying in 1993 in rookie of the year i will say that the line she stacked uh in a movie about you know, middle schoolers is, I can deal with the fact that you, that's not acceptable to say anymore. Well, I think that it's, it's not that it's not acceptable to say, I mean, you have to expect any kind of adolescent kid having, yeah, no. saying that. I think it's just odd that it's in this movie, that it's in this particular movie. Now, if it this was like, uh, a PG 13 movie and there was a little bit more kind of yeah, then raunchy or teen humor in it. Then you then wouldn't think wouldn't, about it. But yeah, it wouldn't feel as out of place. It's just fascinating that that is, and there are tons of little moments like that in this movie. That it's uh, something that's included in a movie that's aimed for a younger audience than just like a PG thirteen movie aimed at like slightly older kids. Well, the other odd thing about this movie that uh, I I don't know would fly anymore is the fact that Gary Busey plays the the romantic interest in this <laughs> as Chet Stedman, the, the Cubs pitcher who sort of takes Henry under his wing after he comes, comes on board. So Busey as a love interest is just such an odd, such an odd thing. I mean, even 93, it seems like an odd thing. His presence hangs over the scenes, even the ones that he's not in that Gary Busey is playing that character in this movie. He's just mm-hmm. always there in your mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. He chews up scenery, that Busey. As soon as he becomes present. He is and always course, present. And of course you have Daniel Stern as Brickma, who is the comic relief, if you want to call him that. He's the goofball on the team who's always pounding uh, sunflower seeds and getting himself trapped in between doors and it's, he's just, he's having a very hard time. Yeah. I mean, what, 
what's going on in his his life would be my question. He's just seems like such a lonely guy. That's the thing about movies like these when they have so many eccentric supporting characters is that you really start to wonder about their lives. Like you just want a movie about each of them. Yeah. So Henry gets this amazing ability. He gets found by the Cubs after he goes to a game and they hit a ball into the stands. He throws it back and it's incredible. And somehow they have him try out and then bring him onto the team. This kid is 11 years old and they, they bring him on. Now, I don't know if that, if somehow the major major league baseball can get around child labor laws or, or what, but yeah, they bring this kid on the team. It's pretty great how this movie is so eager just to get that log line going. He's on the team. He's on this major league baseball team that they just blow past all of the details of like trying to convince everyone that a kid should be on a major league baseball team. And basically everybody just accepts it near instantaneously. I like how there's one scene where they, they put them up to bat because Mm -hmm. in baseball, everybody's got a bat. So it seems like they didn't even think about that until the actual game where they were like, Oh yeah, we forgot to teach this kid how to swing a baseball bat. (laughs) And it just calls into question the the competence of this, uh, the managers of this team. Like they just, they seem so clueless as to how to run a baseball team here. Yeah. Well, that's uh, almost a kind of recurring factor that you could find in any movie of this type is that you have all of these adults in positions of authority and they're all just sort of, comically incompetent but it's not it's not even the focus it's just a taken fact uh rather a given fact that uh they're just sort of jumping way ahead of themselves here yeah so the film is sort of about just being a kid and embracing the fact that you're you're a kid because sort of the through line is that he and his friends are building this boat and he he just wants to he wants to be a kid but once he joins the cubs this sort of this sort of gets taken away from him and he he can't be a kid anymore so and then there's also the the idea that you know you're you're putting this a kid you're putting a kid on a baseball team with adults with adult men and he's going to he's going to flip the script. He's going to change everything and he's going to teach these guys to be a kid again and embrace the kid in us all. And I thought that uh that for the most part it was it didn't didn't really work. I wasn't really on board with the conflict between him and his and his friends cuz it just felt so secondary and like it, it it seemed to happen very quickly and was resolved very quickly it comes up uh peaks as a conflict and then resolves itself within three scenes about two-thirds of the way through and i know that this wouldn't make for good kids movie viewing but they should have well actually you know what maybe it would have he was making a shitload of money like 
they didn't really dive into that. So his his mom's boyfriend decides to become his manager because he sees him as like a cash cow. So he is getting him these sponsorship deals and he's negotiating his contract with the Cubs and all of this stuff. And he's getting 10% of it, of course. And at one point they even mentioned like how much he's going to be getting if, if this like team transfer goes through to the Yankees and while they don't say how much he's currently making, you have to assume that it's in millions. It's in the millions. And I think that they had a sort of a missed opportunity there of just showing off because this kid's rich now. Right. So like, why didn't they show him like rolling up to school in like this crazy new bike or a limo or have him be wearing like fancy clothes or something or the, the, the boat scene for instance, where, you know, they're, they're putting together this boat from these like junkyard parts that they're, they're finding and stuff. Why doesn't he bring them like this brand new motor that's like super high powered or something? Yeah. If there's one through line through a lot of nineties kids movies based on common daydreams, it's just, kids that become absurdly rich and then can indulge all of their sort of exactly. kid fantasies with effectively limitless amounts of money. And they didn't have to make it like a prominent thing, but just mention it because they don't even really mention the fact that this, this kid is rich now. And He's... it would have come back and fed into the conflict between the friends. Yeah. And it also would have made the conflict with the boyfriend, the mom, his mom's boyfriend. It would have made given that more weight because he turns into kind of a and I think that it would have been more impactful if now he's showing off the money like he's wearing these fancy oversized 90s suits and all that stuff. But I think that it would have had a little bit more weight if uh, he if the money was a more prominent thing, more prominent factor. And I mean, you have movies like blank check and first kid and all of these other movies where kids are, I mean, Richie rich too, I guess the, the Macaulay Culkin one. It's right there as in well. the title. Yeah. You have these movies where kids are incredibly rich and living out their dreams and doing crazy stuff like buying giant, ball pits and stuff like that or, uh it's like the most expensive house on the market in america right now is this gigantic mansion where the price itself is part of the stunt and it comes fully furnished and one of the features in it is this giant wall that's made entirely out of candy dispensers and it feels like it just emerged from one of these movies I wanted more giant candy dispenser walls in Rookie of the Year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to go that far with it because movies like Blank Check were were coming out around this time and, like, they covered that. But just to at least touch on the fact that he's rich now, I think it's just odd that they wouldn't dive into that at all. Yeah, the character, the the titular rookie of the year is surprisingly not really an entity in the movie as a person. He's just the 
analog for the viewer that's thinking, wouldn't it be cool if I was playing Major League Baseball? Yeah, which, again, even that, they they barely get into. Like, he first he first joins the team. Nobody respects him. Nobody knows him. They don't they don't really like this kid. And then by the end of the movie, of course, they all love him. But there's not much of a there's there's no real real journey there because at first it's just like he's on the team, nobody likes him. Then he starts winning for them, and then they all love him, and then that's that's it. You know, there is there is more of a, an arc with the um the relationship he has with with Busey's character because Busey is Chet Chet Stedman he's he's training him to be a better pitcher because when he when he first joins the team of course he has no accuracy at all and Chet is training him to be a better pitcher but as far as like the other like life life as a ball player you you don't see a lot of that you you see very small glimpses of it. I did enjoy the uh, the Pepsi scene though because that felt very of of the time where he's doing a Diet Pepsi commercial with the Ray Charles music. The uh huh. It's it's truly a masterpiece. You got the right one, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That was a huge campaign. That was a huge campaign. Lasted a really long time. I don't know. What what did you think about the the team dynamic? Like him being on the team. Do you agree with me? Do you did it feel like it wasn't quite yeah. fully explored? It's more just sort of a series of events that lead you in some meandering way to the next thing that happens to the next thing that happens and then to the next thing that happens and just going until the end. It's not really the idea of let's track the dynamics as everyone grapples with the fact that they're playing with this kid that happens to be a prodigy. It's more about the idea of we're observing the story just as the idea that it is and the idea is enough. Also, you can see where this movie's going, right? I mean... I think it I think it's safe to throw some spoilers in here. I think it's safe to just sort of give a blanket statement that we'll be talking spoilers on on all of the movies. You've had uh, enough time, everyone. Yeah. All the movies that we talk about on this show, I think, will will be spoilers unless otherwise noted. But of course you ex- you expect him to lose the ability at the end. Like that I feel like Anybody that's seen any of these movies knows that something like that is bound to happen. And then... Poor kid's got to keep landing on his shoulder. I know. People just keep leaving baseballs laying around everywhere. (laughs) I can't believe there are baseballs all over this movie about baseballs and baseball fields. Yeah, it's utterly ridiculous. Why would the Cubs litter Wrigley Field with baseballs? Baseball is a very important part of what they do. And they just need to have it everywhere. Uh, I do like the idea of Wrigley Field just having random baseballs just everywhere as as part of the game. Like, that's part of the game. You have to avoid stepping on 
the baseballs. The field crew's been on strike, I'm guessing. According to the the year that they were having in this movie, it wouldn't surprise me. Which yeah. actually leads me to uh, a- another aspect of this was John Candy as the announcer. Absolutely wonderful. I he, he was my favorite part of this movie. Yeah, I, I I think there's no question. I would love John Candy to just be the announcer of every sporting event that I ever watch because I love I just love how how pessimistic he was and cynical about everything that was happening. <laughs> uh he was he's a treasure. Very much a gift to this movie. So after Henry loses his ability, he then has to come up with a way because because the game's not over. You still got like what? Two two outs to 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 go. I think so. And, yeah. and he he's got to come up with something. So he he pulls some tricks out of his 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 cleats. His and uh his injured his injured and uninjured and re-injured sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> uh the the way in which he wins by playing dirty essentially I'm pretty sure that's got to be against the rules. You know, there's, there's I'm pretty rules. sure it's got to be against the rules to have an 11-year-old on your team. That's true. But I think also this would not fly. I don't think. So, like for the first person, he he hands off the baseball to the first baseman and keeps the like the chalk bag and tricks them into it tricks the the person on first base to take a lead and then they tag him which i don't understand how like in what world even this even this movie world i don't understand how that's a thing that that the filmmakers were like yeah we we this is this is a good idea we can get away with this like daniel stern should have known better it's about the spirit of the idea, Adam. Just the, just the notion that this kid, you may not have his magic shoulder anymore, but he's still got a head on it. Uh, that's true. Yeah. It should be noted that one of the... So there's there's not a lot of 90s tood in this movie, but... It's fairly it's a fairly low tood event. It's a fairly low tood event. I'd give it like probably a two or three on the tood scale. But it, there is that famous line, the pitcher's got a big butt. Pitcher's got a big butt. There's that line where he frequently mocks the other team. But he also surprisingly is disruptive during his own team's uh, batting, which ends up screwing things up as well. Or, or also pitching. Now that now I think about it, he's, he screwed uh, Busey up when he first... Got on the team. He had too much tood. That's what drives the number up and then back down. Is that the tood isn't used properly? Yeah, he had a fair amount of tood, but it just wasn't. It just it was just like lame tood. It wasn't edgy, you know. He, he you have the pitcher's got a big butt thing, you know, making fun of the making fun of the guy's butt, which is it's all right, but I don't know. You, there you was could there, do better. You, you could do better than that. You could you could bring it. The 90s brought some hard tude, so you you can break you can do better than that. And then the other the other trick he does gets the, it's 
equally as ridiculous and they all they all win and it's great but then he since he doesn't have his arm anymore they say like he's not going to come back but obviously they would have kicked him off the team anyway <laughs> oh definitely that was just over <laughs> and then guess what he goes back to being a kid just being a kid playing little league and he's he's better now he's he's better at little league now the the basic trajectory of this movie is that it ends with nothing having changed if you go from one to the other except that he's slightly less terrible yeah that's that's pretty much it and he has a he has a uh, world series ring oh that's as nice well. too. yeah yeah which i guess they didn't show that in in the movie but they win so presumably he went with them to the World Series and played through all those games. So I don't know. There's a lot of this movie that's missing. There, there really is. Yeah, you know how on the movie blogs, like all like the blogs that shall not be named because we're on mic right now, uh, whenever there's like a big blockbuster or big movie or something, and the director says, oh yeah, the assembly cut was four hours long, and then they go, insert movie here was initially four hours long because they don't know how assembly cuts work. Yeah. This movie feels like it was actually four hours long at one point. It was an epic. Yeah. It was, it was like, like everything was fleshed out. The entire season happened. A whole two hours of this movie was just devoted to the summer he spent in that cast. Ken Burns presents Daniel Stern's Rookie of the Year. I think that's where we are. We've got to release the director's cut. We've got to release the 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 Stern cut. We've got to start our Zack Snyder campaign. Yeah, let's gonna say let's start a GoFundMe or whatever. We have to uncover cover the truth behind Rookie of the Year. This isn't a ninety. This isn't a nineties nostalgia <laughs> podcast anymore. This is just the Rookie of the Year investigation. This is a twelve part. This is serial. Every what week. Happened? Every week. We will. We will we'll... go deeper. Yeah, we'll we'll break down a scene every single week and then we will we'll do some digging, we'll make some contacts, we'll reach out to Daniel Stern, get his input, we'll track down Thomas Ian Nicholas, Gary Busey, we'll get them on the show. And we'll we'll get to the bottom of this rookie of the year stuff. This is the rookie cast. The rookie cast. <laughs> we will learn the truth. Now Comparing this to other kids' movies. Now, there were a slew of kids' movies during this this time. There tons of kids' movies. Where do you think... Obviously, you haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen all of them. But where do you think this stands up against the Sandlots and the Angels in the Outfields? This is not a peak 90s kids' movie by any stretch of the imagination. But if you were going to get somebody into, like, the bizarre, quasi-disturbed depths of 90s kids' movies, this is, like, kind of one you can get them started with, almost because it kind of has so many little tenets of a 90s kids' movie, but they're also kind of malformed and amorphous. I completely agree. I think that this is a good gateway kids' movie into the 90s. Whereas a lot of them are much more egregious in their, in their nineties ness. And this one is pretty, pretty light when it comes to the, the nineties rhetoric. But 
I, it, it's a good way to ease into it. And then like movies like blank check, I think take it to a whole new level of, of nineties. I think the Sandlot is a movie that is l- even less like, I think maybe Sandlot is probably a more perfect movie because the Sandlot in a lot of ways, just because it takes place in uh, the 60s, I believe. Is it the 60s? Maybe the early 60s? 1962. Yeah, that's okay. That's what I thought, early 60s. That movie is is more timeless, but it does still contain that sort of, that attitude that, that m- most kids' things of this yeah. era brought us. That's one aspect of watching a movie from a couple of decades ago that's set sometime before that is it still feels like a movie from its release. It it does not feed as much into its period setting because it also has to have contemporary uh, markings, especially if it's like a movie aimed at kids or something. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk more about this with our with our next movie as well yes i would li- i would like to say quite a uh, a bit when we get there about the uh, the boy from the 1600s and hocus pocus <laughs> that has 90s hair yeah absolutely that was the first thing i noticed about that any final thoughts on rookie of the year it's a little bit hard to just sort of sum it up because there's so many ideas being suggested here that never actually happen but at the same time it's just harmless. It's good. It's well-intended. I think that the humor for the most part is certainly leaning more heavily towards the, the youth side of things. I, I think that a lot of the jokes for don't land for adults, but there were still a few things that, that made me, uh, made me chuckle to myself. And certainly I, I think that this, it may it may not hold up to my vision of it as a child, but watching it now, I was I was still entertained by it, and I felt like you know, this is it's it's fairly harmless. And I would say that it it does stand up to a certain degree to the test of time. Again, the the next movie we're going to be talking about, I I feel very differently about that one. So maybe let's uh, let's move on and yeah get into our next thing. We'll be back with more movies after this quick commercial break. Summer's fun and why is summer funner? The 50s combo. A great tasting Sonic burger and order fries, a medium Coke flask for just $2.29. The 50s combo. And summer's funner with a match two to win game. You could win a free Corvette. One of 15 trips to Cancun. A free Corvette. Free food. Free Corvette. Free Coke. So try the 50s combo. You could win. I wish I could win. The 90s were a great time to be a kid and that everything seemed to be marketed towards a younger generation. While the 80s may have paved the way, the kids rule mentality really took over in the 90s with a glut of TV shows, toys, and of course, movies. Home Alone, The Sandlot, Angels in the Outfield, Blank Check, the list goes on and on. And our next film released on July 16th, Hocus Pocus, can be firmly planted in that category. Back in 1693, the people of Salem, Massachusetts... Witches! ...thought they got rid of the Sanderson sisters for good. 300 years later, it's Halloween Eve, and they're back. Uh Uh-oh. We are home! 
Are you boys a little old to be trick-or-treating? Now they're digging up old friends. <laughs> and running amok. Looking for the one thing they miss most. You stay for supper. I'm not hungry. But we are. Only one boy has the power to stop them. Prepare to die again. You have no power to hear you. Before all Salem falls under their spell. After three centuries, a trio of witch sisters are resurrected in Salem, Massachusetts on Halloween. And it's up to two teenagers, a young girl, and a mortal cat to put an end to their reign of terror. So, Adam, what do you think about Pocus Pocus? This is another one that I was a massive fan of as a kid. I was so into Halloween growing up. My whole family was actually. We would have these huge Halloween parties and we would invite all of my friends from school and everybody would come dress up and my parents would, uh, we had, so we lived in a house that was a hundred years old and it had this really creepy sort of, uh, I can't even describe our basement. We had a really creepy looking basement and it was huge and it was big enough that we could put on parties and my parents would have like games for us and they would set up like haunted house type stuff for us to walk through. And like our whole house would be decorated for Halloween. Our outside would be decorated for Halloween. So I grew up just absolutely loving and being completely uh, immersed in Halloween anytime the ever for every year. And the, so when this movie came out, I was naturally drawn to it and when this halloween movie came out in the middle of summer yeah in july uh i absolutely loved it this is one that i again would rewatch over and over again i saw this in the theater i did not own this on vhs or anything but i think my neighbor did and we she and i would watch it just non-stop and i think that i really think that like those early those early years uh, and me being so fond of Halloween sort of cultivated my love for horror movies. I think that it's sort of pushed me into that. It helped build the Adam Patterson we know and love today. Yeah, I think so. I really, I really think so. I mean, back when I was, uh, again, I was nine years old and I was watching horror movies when I could get a hold of them or whenever they would put the edited versions of horror movies on TV. So I was consuming horror movies as much as I possibly could, although my parents were pretty good at, at shielding me from a lot of the more R-rated stuff back then. They sort of gave up, I would say, a year or two later that when once they knew that they were never going to be able to control me watching R-rated movies. So they sort of gave up. But during this time, I was still they were still sort of policing that. But I really loved Hocus Pocus then. Now, I found it to be almost insufferable to watch. Oh, this was this was a movie that, again, I have not seen for years. I think I caught part of it maybe a couple years ago on TV. And then I was like, "Ooh, this is a little rough. But watching it now, I was just like, this is this is just it's brutal. I, I can't. I can't get behind this. I think the big thing for me was how annoying the witches were. The witches were my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy as 
the witches. And they were just so annoying to me. I guess back then when you're a kid, I think for some reason, I think kids are drawn to annoying things. Kids are annoying things. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's what it is. They are annoying things and they're drawn to annoying things. And when you become an adult, you realize that all of those things are terribly annoying. But, uh, yeah, I just, I was not on board with this movie. There were certain, there were fun moments. I didn't, I didn't hate it, but I also didn't really have that much fun watching it. Did you see Hocus Pocus before? Is this the first time watched? This is a movie that has definitely had a second life. Uh, it kind of came and went without a terrible amount of notice, just in terms of critically and at the box office when it was released. But this is a movie as someone who grew up in the 2000s and 2010s this is a movie i remember would is always on like basic cable incessantly around halloween this is a known quantity for people my age like it's not that it's not really a touchstone but it is something that's always been there so i was very aware of this movie it was always on like the disney channel or on ABC family ABC family yeah uh so yeah i had definitely seen this movie before it's all of it seemed played very familiar uh i didn't really remember it so this was the first time that i watched it through and really like took note of it and i had fun i i thought it was fun it has bet midler singing i put a spell on you in the middle it just stops the whole movie cold and it's just her doing her thing which again what, what how does that make any sense she's a witch from the 1600s how does she know the words because she's that Bette song. Midler. Maybe they were absorbing some some knowledge or something. She she quickly memorized the lyrics before singing the song. It's it's a movie that if you think about any any one detail for more than 30 seconds, all the logic falls apart out of it. I just and, preemptively realized that and I just said there is no logic. It is Bette Midler singing I put a spell on you despite the fact that her character should not know what that is that is the entire essence of this movie that is its energy it's just channeled in that moment she shouldn't even what... know what a microphone is she she, no. in, she instantly somehow knows how to use a microphone <laughs> and she and shouldn't she, and she plays that crowd that crowd is there for it they are they're they're definitely on board so let's let's talk about they know how to have a good time adam they do. They they were partying hard all night. Let's talk about the plot a little bit. The film starts in like the 1600s, right? And we see the the witches as older women. They don't look that much different, to be honest with you. Like Sarah Jessica Parker, her her teeth are a little bit more yellow, and they just they look slightly older, and they're trying to become young again so they had so they kidnapped this this girl and what i don't understand is, is so they brew up this potion and they have to feed the potion to the girl and then they like suck her life out and her older brother s- comes in and, and saves the day but somehow the girl still gets the the potion in her because it, it, i didn't think that she drank it did she drink it? Did she? Because it, it looked like they were about to feed it to her, 
But he goes, stop. You know, he, he jumped in before they gave it to her. And There's a lot going on in this movie, and that's at the very start. Yeah. That's my defense. <laughs> I don't think they gave her the stuff. and But somehow the, the spell still worked, and they, they did get younger. And then they ended up casting a spell on, on the, the brother, the older brother, to turn him into a, a cat, an invincible cat. It has more than nine lives. Or maybe it only has nine lives, and it just hasn't used any of them up yet. I know, I would think in 300 years, he probably would have been run over. Um, I don't know. Maybe if he just stayed into that museum, the house. Anyway. A very, very cautiously preserving those nine lives. So we jump forward 300 years. So so the, the witches get caught and hanged. And 300 years later... We have the kid from Erie, Indiana, Omri Katz, as Max. He comes in, and you need to to reawake them or to to bring them back from the dead. You have to light this candle, and it's, it has to be a virgin that does it. And that's part of the joke. He's a virgin. This, this Disney movie spends an inordinate amount of time obsessing over its main character's virginity. Yeah. So he lights this candle thinking, because he's the skeptic. He's the new kid coming in from California. That's another thing. This movie, everybody hates that he's from California. Yeah. Especially the, the bullies that he encounters. Ice. Ice. These coastal elitists from California, say these Massachusetts. <laughs> so he lights this candle, brings him back, and then they set out to capture all of the kids in the town and suck the life right out of all the kids. As and they have, do. they have to do it before the next day or else they apparently bet Midler turns to stone and the rest of them explode or she turns to stone, then explodes for some reason. I don't know why the rest of them didn't turn to stone, then explode. I guess because she was the leader, she gets to turn to stone first before exploding. It's it's a perk. The the entire movie takes place over the course of one Halloween night, and the three witches are chasing them, and they have this book, which is essentially the Necronomicon. It's a book bound in human flesh, and they're trying to keep that from the witches so that they can do their uh, make their little brew to suck the life out of all the kids. And it's it's kind of fun, but again, uh, I found it to be really grating at times. I remember when I was a kid, I thought that uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character was just so gorgeous. I had a big crush on her back then, but now it's uh, I find her to be a little bit a little bit too much. I just kind of enjoy just how breezily over the top it is. Like you can tell that particularly uh, the witches, particularly Bette Midler, is having, are, they're having a lot of fun with this. They're just sort of carrying the entire energy of this movie just from scene to scene, just coming in and out. Uh, and that's that's kind of what I was looking for here. That's how I remembered it, I guess, uh, was just something about it that just seemed vaguely off and now that i was able to watch it all the way through now for this podcast i was just able to kind of 
except all of the mood around it, and I was just probably more uncritical than I should have been. I think I said on Letterboxd, this is the only thing that could ever convince me that daylight saving time has any practical value, because that's how they trick the witches out, is they mess with their uh, perception of yeah, yeah. Sun of those of the sunrise and sunsets with the great line daylight saving time. I just I I totally see first of all, I don't know why this is one of these movies that sort of developed a cult following and sort of became really popular. It More was on TV it seems, enough, I guess. Yeah, I think that might be it. So like cuz it seems like that in a lot of ways this movie's more popular now than it was back then. Oh, and definitely when, feels like it. When you look at, you know, this is a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't do very well. And I guess the fact that it, it is a Disney film and the fact that every Halloween, you know, ABC family is playing this movie. Maybe it's, maybe it's the younger generation that grew up watching this every year on ABC family just grew to have some sort of nostalgia for it. I definitely and, absor absorbed the idea that this movie was popular from people my age. I guess that'll be a recurring theme on the show is that I'm experiencing this all for the first time and you're bringing your nostalgia into it. And I would say in this, in this case, sort of the reverse of what you would usually expect. Uh, I feel like I absorbed a lot of positive nostalgia from people my age who have seen it on tv growing up than you did is just seeing it yeah first run well i rem I, mean, I loved it when i was a kid and, I, and I, I know a lot of people that that really loved it as well but watching it now i just don't i just don't feel like it holds up for me i mean it, it very well may hold up for other people my age that that are blind by that nostalgia but <laughs> And I fully admit that there's some movies that I am totally nostalgia blind to, but for some reason, this one, I just did not enjoy myself nearly as much as I, I thought I would. For some reason, the, 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 the um, like the, the, the barking, the, I'm trying to find who was, uh, Kathy Najimy's, uh, Mary Sanderson. Why was she like barking and growling like a dog all the time? And she's like tracking down the kids. Oh yeah, that's her that's her special ability is that she can smell she can smell the children. She knows when the children are around. She's got she's got to channel that, Adam. She's got to channel it. One thing I will say, so aiding uh the the kids. So you have you have Max and his sister, his little sister, Danny, played by Thor Birch. And then you have the love interest, Allison, played by Vanessa Shaw. And it's the three of them trying to fight back these witches. And aiding them is the cat that we mentioned before. Uh, I, what was his name? Binks or Blinks? His was name Binks. was his name was Thackeray. Thackeray Binks. Thackeray Binks, who oddly, the live action actor playing Thackeray was not the same person that voiced the cat Thackeray. The time does things to you. I'm not sure why they got a different the, the, the person. Year, the years can be rough. I did just going back to 
what we talked about earlier. I loved that opening sequence where he has that classic middle part haircut in the 1600s. I'm just I like, oh, man. I cannot stop thinking about that. I was like, oh, man, that just... You know who he, he he's actually the guy from uh, Criminal Minds. No, I'm sorry, NCIS. I knew it was one of those uh, procedurals. Yeah, I used to watch Criminal Minds a lot. I I know my Criminal Minds. That... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I was looking at the cast list. Nothing was ringing a bell here. I'm the resident Criminal Minds expert here. Yeah. It, yeah, it was NCIS. All Criminal Minds before four seasons ago when I stopped watching. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with, with those shows, but yeah, he's on NCIS. I guess he's, I don't know if he still is or not, but so yeah, he had a decent career afterwards. Again, uh, Max, the guy who plays Max, uh, Omri Katz, Erie, Indiana. If you guys haven't seen Erie, Indiana, one of my favorite shows that ran from, it just ran from 91 to 92. So it was a pretty short lived show, but absolutely incredible. It was like, it was sort of like, I don't want to say tales from the crypt because that's not quite accurate because it was the same character. So it was, it was about this kid and his best friend and they, he moved to this town called Erie, Indiana. And he found that like, there was like all this weird stuff happening in the town. So him and this kid that he meets form like this investigation duo. So they investigate all these weird things that happen. And like, I remember one episode was this, uh, this woman, she was a Tupperware salesperson and she would actually keep her two kids in giant Tupperware containers and like preserved them. So it turned out that they were like a hundred years old, but because they slept in Tupperware every night, it preserved them and kept them as kids. That's pretty intense. Yeah. If that, if that doesn't make you want to seek out Erie, Indiana, I don't know yeah, what. Yeah. Toby McGuire, I believe had his first acting role as a ghost in Erie, Indiana. Amazing show. Was this product placement from the Tupperware people? Did they approve this? I, you know, I don't know if they actually, I don't think they call it Tupperware in the show. I think they call it something else. So like in, it's like in the movie uh, Ouija where the Ouija board kills you, but it's also to sell more Ouija boards. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's what Hasbro, that's Hasbro for you. I love, I'm sorry, we're getting off track here, but I love how any religious institution has like a field day complaining about, you know, things like Ouija boards. They seem like they're games, but they're really evil. It's literally made by Hasbro. It's just a thing. Yeah. Omri Katz was also in Matinee that came out in 1993. I watched Matinee the other day. Yeah. Matinee came out in January. It's so good. I know. I love Matinee. I saw Matinee in the theater. That is, that would be such a good movie to see in a theater. Yeah, I saw it in a theater when it first came out, and uh, I, I went to see it with my cousin, and he and I got in a big argument right after the movie, like in the car on the ride home, and it like just totally ruined the experience for me. We got this like big blowout argument, and I was just so upset, and it just it ruined the whole movie going experience for me. But I watched it again years later and, and sort of 
redeemed redeemed my memories of it but classic joe dante it's stars john goodman it's about sort of about um uh uh uh, william castle william castle so definitely recommend checking out matinee not just for the the omri cats just a little lukewarm on hocus pocus this time around i thought the tude meter was pretty low. Not a lot of tude yeah. happening in this. You got your except ice. for the extremely <laughs> anti-California. Yeah, they stole his shoes. Yeah, I do like how they later, um, Ice and his boy got caged, and I love the scene when uh, Henry had the option of letting them out, and he just let him in there. Or sorry, Max, not Henry. I'm still on. <laughs> the other movie when he uh decided to just leave him in the cages so presumably those children did not get out of the cages no they died that's, yeah that's like negligent that's homicide or something ice that's what you get for being nicknamed ice that should count for a few two points who nicknames themselves ice anymore yeah i i'd give it probably like two this movie like two points maybe because there's really not that much going on I mean, Thor Birch, her her character is Danny. She she gives some tude. She has some pretty solid tude. Uh, any final thoughts on Hocus Pocus? I might rewatch this at Halloween. Is what I'll say. Oh, oh man, uh, I I am the I am a late millennial, early Gen Z convert to the 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 cult church of Hocus Pocus. It's like it's like right up there with Space Jam. It's like Hocus Pocus and Space Jam, these these movies that were not well received that somehow developed these these cult followings. By the I'm reading that by the late two thousands, early twenty tens, maybe still now, maybe it's maybe the, the Hocus Pocus revival has done all it can do, but uh for a while, every year the most con- the the uh the ABC Family Halloween lineup broadcast with the highest rating every year of the whole program was always Hocus Pocus. Yeah. The last one before Halloween. That makes sense. I mean, I know they've been playing that movie, but it just kind of goes to show you that like, if you want something to be a hit, just, just play it over and over again. Like this, like if we, we just need to play this podcast Every year, yeah, just every mm-hmm. year, broadcast this episode, and eventually mm-hmm. it'll become a, a cult hit. Yeah, finally start collecting those uh, podcast royalty checks that everybody <laughs> totally gets. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy! Destroy every egg-laying, chest-bursting, acid-spitting alien on the planet, or this nightmare will never end. Alien Three on Super NES from LJN. If you happen to pick up Alien 3 for Super Nintendo last month, then listen close, friend, because this month's Cheater's Corner is for you. If you're having trouble getting Ripley through those nasty xenomorphs, then do the following. Begin the game and press A, B, Y, X on controller 2. Press A on controller 1, and a number will appear in the top corner. Re-enter the code on controller 2 and press B or X to increase the number to 5, and you'll get unlimited weapons and invincibility. Got it? Good. Now kick some alien butt. 
While there are no shortage of family-friendly made-for-TV movies in July of 1993, the Disney Channel original miniseries Heidi comes to mind, followed up by the radical rollerblading movie Airborne later that September. Loved Airborne. We might have to talk about that at some point. Add it to the list. The era of the TV movie was in full swing, a topic that we may discuss in a later episode, but... For, we will we, discuss yeah. in a later episode. So many TV movies. I mean, we might even want to do like try to fit in a TV movie every episode if we if we can find one that that fits. Yeah, I mean, it's just a bunch of movies produced on a fairly short timetable. Many of them of just a way to dramatize things happening in the news. And a lot of them have been uh, lost to time. Yeah, like, like nobody talks about TV movies very much. Like they were just pumping them out like the thing where apparently the the story about the the cave rescue in thailand has already been optioned for a movie uh and people thought that was weird they were jumping on it so fast if this happened in the mid 90s it would have been on air already yeah it really would have it it definitely would have still been in there and the movie would have been broadcast (laughs) uh for our final film we chose a relatively obscure tv movie released in on july 5th on fox Titled 1201. Barry Thomas is about to experience the most extraordinary day of his life. In just 12 hours, he will lose his job. I like you, Barry. I really do. You're fired. He will fall in love. And he will finally meet the woman of his dreams. Then he will have to watch her murder. But what will make this Tuesday even more unforgettable is it 1201 something is going to make it start all over again now one man must uncover the secret how come lisa frederick's murder was not on tv it was not in the newspapers nothing lisa's murder 1201 starring jonathan silverman of weekend at bernie's one and two and brighton beach memoirs adapted from richard lupoff's 1973 short story 1201 follows the same time loop mechanic as Groundhog Day, a film released back in February. In fact, the author attempted to sue the producers of Groundhog Day, but eventually dropped the case after six months of legal proceedings. The film stars Jonathan Silverman as Barry Thomas, an average office worker who develops a crush on one of his co-workers, Lisa Fredericks. After work, Barry witnesses the murder of Lisa and, still reeling from what he witnessed, goes to a bar to get wasted. Later that night, there's a thunderstorm and Barry gets a shock from his lamp due to a faulty wire at exactly 12.01 a.m. The next morning, he realizes that everything is happening exactly as it did the previous day. The next morning, the day is repeated again. It is now Barry's job, being the only person alive who is aware of this time loop, to stop the murder of Lisa and stop the time loop or be caught in it forever. So... This is, as you said, Ken, this is pretty much Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day came out earlier in the year, and but they, I guess, found that Groundhog Day was somehow ripping off this movie. I mean, it is based off of an, a short story that had been around for 20 years by that point. Certainly, but... When you compare the two, when you compare Groundhog Day to this movie, now I never read the short story, but I'm assuming that the short story is the same, pretty much the same as 1201, the movie. 
they're not. I mean, the time loop thing is the only thing. That's the only similarity between the two. I mean, I guess if you want to really reach, you can say uh, there's the love story angle. But, you know, I think that's a pretty far reach. I think that yeah. I, I honestly think that Groundhog Day did it way better. I, I think that it was more interesting because I, I didn't really feel like they capitalized quite enough on the time loop mechanic in 1201. Yeah, I think watching a movie like this, kind of a very, very, very mediocre uh, exercise of the time loop makes me realize that I don't like the time loop device that much at all. You know, I think that... like I, I it's Certainly, we don't... We don't need a lot of it, you know, any more movies that come out that have the time loop mechanic. I think I will not be on board with. We've had a comedy that uh, there was a movie called Premature that came out a couple of years ago. That was like a, a teen sex comedy about the time loop that had a time loop. There was Happy Death Day that came out last year that was a pretty well done horror movie yeah. that, that played with the time loop there was uh there was another like a sci-fi horror movie called like i can't remember what it's called it was a series of numbers it was like one one five seven or something like that it was also about the t a time loop so you get tons of these time was, loop uh, movies there, yeah there was uh yeah there have been a few there was also that um before i fall uh which i think was last year yeah. which i didn't mind except for the fact that it was about a time loop. I think my problem with the time loop device is that it's so predicated on the idea that there are a handful of scenes that will have to be repeated over and over where the plot is not necessarily moving at all, uh, except for the fact the character has to come to terms with the fact that they are uh, in a day that is repeating. And then, they have, and then they try to tell other people, and the other people do not believe them, but I've seen so many of these time loop movies that if someone actually came up to me and said that they were living the same day over and over again, I'd probably believe <laughs> I'd them. I'd be like, oh, you're stuck in a time loop? <laughs> like immediately. Uh, yeah, no, I would, I, would, I would be there. I would buy it immediately. Yeah, I mean, to your point about the having to show the same scenes over and over again, I think that Groundhog Day did it probably the best in that yeah. even when it repeated, it was still funny because they made it different enough that you know like like bill murray's interaction with stephen tobolowski and just those those little sort of interstitial scenes that that made it enjoyable to to rewatch it i think happy death day did a pretty good job of it too just because they zoomed after like the first two they zoomed through the uh the, the day up up until like what when new stuff started to happen I think that 1201 uh, was not good at it. I think that they did it. Really a fan <laughs> of the same, like, three to five events. Yeah, I think that they uh, were absolutely horrible at the mechanic. Now, one interesting thing about 1201 is that they actually try to explain why the loop is happening. And I'm not sure that any of these other movies really get into it other than the fact like they don't really try to explain the loop they're just like well they're in a they're in a time loop like that's that's just the way it is and you can do that now everybody's familiar with it it's like they're in a time loop yeah but 
1201 actually tried to scientifically explain what was going on. See, Jonathan Silverman works for this company that built this mach- this machine that malfunctions and causes it to happen, but it just so happens that he gets electrocuted when the, the loop occurs, so he remembers everything. I don't know how that, you know, uh, somehow exempts him from time loop status, but... It it does. And it does. So you have that, and then you have him trying to to save Helen Slater, who who gets killed at the end of every day, but also he's kind of gotta make time to to romance her and get get her to fall in love with him. That is such a weirdly underdeveloped and unnecessary device of this. Yeah, it is. It it really Yeah. Yeah. Then you have Martin Landau as Thaddeus Moxley, Dr. Thaddeus Moxley, who... That is a great name. He's the, he's the creator of this, uh, this machine. And then, of course, you have Jeremy Piven in there as the douchey co-worker, handing him the, uh, the, the disc that shocks him every day and, and dismantling his chair. Like, that's all he has to do. Like, you don't have actual work to do. You, it probably took him at least 30 minutes to dismantle that chair. To dismantle the chair. When does he get... Did, did he get to work early that day just so he could dismantle the chair? I, I don't know. No, no, I think because he does it later. So... Oh, yeah. So a- after Jonathan Silverman leaves, then he does it when he comes back. I've seen like five movies in the past two days. They're all running together. So uh, Jonathan Silverman's horrible in this. He is... I feel like he's doing his best Jimmy Stewart impersonation throughout this whole movie. He's really trying. It's so rough. And like, he tries to be like a goofball. Like he's trying to be funny. And at first the dialogue seems to be entirely, it's, it's moving way too fast. And it almost feels like we're watching like some kind of old, talky or something written by Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, yes, and and Aaron Sorkin in a in a very in a very poor environment. Yeah. So yeah, Jonathan Silverman not not very good. Not very good in this at all. I really despised his character actually, which uh the West Wing after Aaron Sorkin left. There we'll go with there that you one. Go. There you go. Because he's the main character and we spent spend the whole time with him uh that made it very difficult for me to to really enjoy this movie now i should note that i watched it twice because when we were first doing research for this show and putting it together and deciding what we wanted to cover and how we wanted to do it uh the like one of the first things i did when we landed on a date uh was I watched this movie because it was like, because I knew that this came out and I was like, oh, let me watch it. That was like two months ago. So <laughs> in that amount of time, I forgot literally everything that happened in this movie. So I had to rewatch it again today. And the whole time I'm like, oh my God. I watched it last night and you're telling me things that I've already forgotten. It's, it's a very, very forgettable endeavor. 
your memory of this is better than mine. When did you first see it? Did you see it on the original air date? No, I never. No, I, I didn't even know about this movie, actually. This is one that I have no backstory with whatsoever. Uh, I had never heard of it. No, this. I never heard of it either. I, I only heard of it while doing while researching uh, July of 93. So I, I never knew that it existed at all. But as soon as I read it, and as soon as I read about how the the creators tried to sue the author of the, I guess it was the author of the original short story, try, tried yes. to sue uh, the folks, the Groundhog Day folks. That uh, that that's sort of what piqued my interest, and then looking at that beautiful cover with the clock, oh, yeah. the clock, and the the the, the glowy clock and yeah. all the, like the glowy people, and I saw that cover, and I was completely sold. Clearly, not like there was not this was not a cover taken from an actual publicity shoot. This is clearly just. Images extracted from the movie put on the put on the cover. Oh yeah. Interestingly, I think it was uh I think it was like New Line Cinema that that made this. Yeah, New Line credit comes up it, at the it, start. It feels like now it's possible that New Line is they're they're the ones that handled the the home video release of this. So uh I think that this was actually released on home video. So they might have just handled that and Fox actually made made it cuz it did air on Fox. So th yeah, that's Yeah, I do remember seeing the New Line Cinema like title card in the movie though. Yeah, at the beginning, right? Yeah, no, not the studio logo, the actual title card that says New Line Cinema over the actual film. Oh, I see. I don't know how TV movies work because we so rarely get TV movies these days. Yeah. We get like nowadays. I mean, we get we get limited series. Yeah, I, th like I think we should would we should hedge that. We get TV movies, but they're like good TV movies. They're HBO TV movies. We don't get like network TV movies. Yeah, yeah. That that is so rare. And more than anything, we get limited series. So we'll get mm -hmm. like uh, like uh, Sharp Objects on HBO. Great example. Have you watched that? How is that? That's uh. Too early, too early for me to say. I enjoyed the first episode, mm -hmm. but I don't know where it's going. It, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really have an opinion on it just yet. I think I need to see one or two more episodes to, to decide if I'm going to stick with it. I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. It might only be like six or something, but uh, intriguing so far. I'll watch more. It didn't completely get its hooks in me, but. Yeah, it's okay. All right. I want I do want more. Now, there are cable channels that still do TV movies. Lifetime. That's mm -hmm. Lifetime is a great example of a channel that still makes its bread and butter off of TV movies. I think that and like sort of the vaguely lurid 90s network style TV movies. Yeah. That don't really have any genuine value. The Hallmark Channel TV movies, there's a whole fan base around Hallmark Channel movies. They're nice. They're, they're, I think the word that everybody uses, they're cozy. Like there's a whole podcast about cozy entertainment and that's what it is. It's cozy entertainment produced on a level that 
just nobody else would bother to make those movies, but producing them for people who can appreciate them. And it's just there on the Hallmark Channel, as opposed to somewhere like Lifetime, which is just making the movies that were being shown on the major networks yeah. 20 years ago. Now, this I don't know if this is a great example of a made-for-TV movie, because to me, this yeah, felt no, more it's... like a regular theatrical movie. I mean, it even has a, an MPAA rating mm-hmm. and and everything. So to me, this feels more like just a straight-to-video movie than a TV movie. I'm sure in the future we'll be covering more made-for-TV movies that just really feel like made-for-TV movies. The insert current uh, figure in the news name yeah, story. Like, like the like Lorena Bobbitt. <laughs> like the Lorena yeah. Bobbitt story or Amy Fisher or Truly the stories that T V movies were made yeah, for. Yeah. So there you have varying degrees of of T V movie. And I'm I'm wondering if maybe this was made for a theatrical release and just didn't get it. And then they were like, all right, let's just yeah, it, it feels Fox. like something that was at some stage supposed to be a theatrical release. There's there's some uh, like some kind of CG effects going in this one. It was interesting. Like in in other time loop movies, usually the character just goes to bed or just wakes up. You know, one when the when it resets, they just wake up in bed. In this, there's this whole thing that happens where they they have to be sure to show us a clock because it doesn't seem to happen anywhere but right on a clock where the clock Mm -hmm. starts to warp and then the time loop happens. Mm -hmm. I wonder what everything else looks like other than the clock. Yeah. Is it just clocks that have the warping effect or does everything warp? I don't know. So many questions. So many questions about... You throw in little elements like there, and then you just want to start pulling at that thread and seeing where it goes. Not so much with this movie, though. Yeah. <laughs> not no, so much. I, 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 I can see that there could have been a thread, but I did not want to say that I was going to pull it. There just, there wasn't even, it just wasn't really that fun. It was just pretty boring. And the only thread was that clock thing. Yeah. The clock thing is definitely. And the robot clock on his yeah yeah the robot clock what was that all about was getting some some peewee peewee's big adventure vibes from that yeah like he's he's he yeah. works in personnel so like when you first see that robot you think oh man he's like a he's like an inventor right like he he yeah. works in the lab and he's gonna be the guy that does something to mess this thing up causing the loop but no he works in personnel no he he just yeah. And he just happens to have this, this robot that talks to him, this robot clock. Really kind of a missed opportunity there. I loved his oversized suit, though. The, the 90s suit was, uh, was on point. He had an incredible, he had incredible a suit. Wonderful suit. Pretty low on the toot as well. Really, I would... I, yeah, I'd probably, basically no toot. Yeah, I'd probably give it a one. There's this one scene that happens a few times with this kid, these two kids throwing mm-hmm. the football around, which is, they must be throwing this football around at like seven in the morning. And you have this other guy mm-hmm. sitting out on the lawn, reading the paper, drinking a beer at, I would assume is very early in the morning. Yeah. And 
I can't remember what the kid says, but it's it's definitely uh, some sort of catchphrase. I think he says like "up yours" or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, eh, that's really all I have to say about twelve oh one. It's not really worth seeking out. I think that there's probably a reason that nobody <laughs> knows about yeah. this movie. This is the kind of like movie that you could probably find on YouTube because, you know, who cares enough to start, you know, really go, uh, really adding that to the ID content database. Yeah. I mean, you, you can definitely find it on YouTube. I can tell you that for a fact. Wink, wink. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't know. Of yeah. course we apparently was released on DVD and that is obviously where we yes, saw it. Of, of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, this this whole project feels like it was supposed to be a theatrical release at one stage and then went to Fox where it got buried on... This had to have aired on like a Saturday or something. Uh, and then, yeah, this whole project was about people losing money. I think so. Yeah, I think so. All right, that is 1201. Martin Landau explodes at the end. Oh yes, that's right. I that, I just thought I about did wanna... that. I, that that's the last thing we need to mention to people. I did want to mention is that it. it has a pretty incredible. And they go to jail. <laughs> they go to jail. Yeah, that's the happy ending. <laughs> Martin Landau explodes, and the two leads explodes. go to jail. <laughs> Presumably for the murder of Martin Landau. Yeah, that like. <laughs> What what's their defense? Uh, time. Explaining the yeah. time loop again. But the, in the movie, they didn't. They're going away for the life. The funny thing was, in the movie, they didn't call it a time loop. They called it a time bounce, which was oh, even yeah. so so silly to me. Like, why not call it a? I mean, I guess they just didn't have the term for it. But to call it a time I mean, bounce I don't the know. time loop device had been around for long enough i'd have to think it had a name by then you would think so but they did not call it a time loop they called it a time bounce yeah. in that movie mm -hmm. so yeah that's the that's the ending martin landau explodes and then uh jonathan silverman and helen slater i am going to assume probably go to jail for life <laughs> <laughs> that is a life sentence to blow someone up with a giant whatever that was supposed to be. Yeah, I don't even know what it was supposed to be. It was like this, a laser. It was like this laser thing. <laughs> At the best, they get like, they can use the insanity de uh, defense once their uh, lawyer, lawyers hear about them claiming that they're in a time. Yep. <laughs> and that's the happy ending. Yep. Yep. It, it was, it was like billed as a happy ending too. Like they kissed and it was, playing the happy music score was pretty good no, in that movie I'll, I'll tell you that that's that's yeah. one good thing the, the score was okay it felt very amblin-esque mm -hmm. all right i think that's gonna do it thank you so much for listening to our inaugural episode if you dig it please consider reviewing us on itunes since this is a brand new show your review will go a long way We'll be back next month with another installment, but until then, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at 90sPod, and be sure to send us feedback and topics you want to hear us discuss at feedback at filmpulse.net. For Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson, and this has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. Bye.